Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Well, welcome to After Party Pod. I am your host, Anna David. And uh, what do I want to tell you about me? I write books and I'm the creator of the After Party Group, which includes this very podcast. Also includes After Party Chat, a website about addiction, recovery, and all that falls between. Does any regular listener notice that I'm being more professional than usual? That is because potentially... I am recording this in a new space, and I'm recording this in a new space because I listened to you, and because one of the reviews mentioned that the sound quality was not as good as as other, like, I loved the way she phrased it, it was like as other top-notch podcasts like it, and I do have fancy recording um, equipment, so I wondered if it was where I was recording the podcast, which was in my office. So I am now in a soundproof screening room, which definitely means people outside can't hear me, but does it mean it sounds better for you? Because that's what matters to me. So maybe you'll let me know. Maybe you'll tweet at me. I am at Anna B. David on Twitter. I'm going to tell you because I trust you. My middle name is Benjamin. I'm just letting that sink in. It's a man's name. That means I have two man's names in my three-person name. And no, it's not that my parents wanted a boy, at least they've never told me that. It was that it was a family name, somebody's maiden name, whatever. Oh, also, my born name was Diana. We can get into that another time if anybody's interested. Speaking of interested and speaking of doing things for you, hey, send me questions. Do you have questions you ever want me to ask guests? Do you have anything you'd like me to uh, say, do you want shout outs? Like, what do you want? So you can email me at afterpartychat at gmail.com. I don't think you need to say, no, you do need to say that. And, um, or you can tweet at me at Anna B. David. So that's my spiel. I want to tell you about my guest today. His name is Dr. Steve, Steven Danziger. Spelled not the way you picture, but D-A-N-S-I-G-E-R. And he is a fascinating guy. Uh, He was a drummer and member of these bands that were big. King Missile, Pianosaurus, Pianosaurus, and others. And that was his life. He was not sober then. Then he got sober. Uh, Well, he got sober. Then he had a a breakdown many years into sobriety. Then he uh, went and discovered uh, Buddhism and meditation, and that brought him back. And now he has a doctorate in clinical psychology, and he is opening 
slash has opened his own treatment center with Noah Levine from Against the Stream, the Dharma Punk Sky, and it is an outpatient center right down the street conveniently from where I sit right now. And uh, it's fantastic. And uh, I hope you guys will, will check it out. It's called Start Again uh, is the website for that. And um, Boulevard is the name of the treatment center. So there is that. And Steve and I have talked about doing some other stuff, maybe doing a podcast together. Uh, that Because he's starting a podcast company, a publishing company. He's doing it all, you guys. He's been sober a long time. And you may have heard him on WTF. He is a good friend of Mark Marin's, and um, faithful listeners will know that Mark and I discussed him when I had Mark on the podcast. And th- that's that's Dr. Steve. So I hope you enjoy this, and um, I hope you tell me if you do, even if you hate it. I'm open to whatever. Okay, here he is. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my god, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Um, hi Steve. Hey Anna, how you doing? Should I call you Dr. Steve? Oh, you can call me, uh, that, that's too long. Just call me Steve. I mean, Doc Steve is shorter. It is. Just Doc. A lot of people call me Doc. Do now. they really do yeah. that? Yeah, I've got like to like to call me Doc. Um, I think that's really weird. I mean, I would not call, my therapist happens to not be um, a doctor, so it would be even stranger, but if she was, I don't know. It's so affectionate. It's for a thing. A, I've, got, a, I've got the Docs, I've got Dr. Steve, I've got yeah. Steve. Yeah. I've got yo. The only thing about Dr. Steve is it sounds a little like you're a chiropractor. A little bit, or an acupuncturist. Yeah, yeah that's true. So um, we're going to get into it, man. All right, just fire away. Okay, just okay. Go. And so so because you, you have had like two lives, or more like six maybe. I know about two. Mm-hmm. I may find out about six more. Okay. I've had a bunch, so I'm curious which ones you're aware of. Well, I know about the 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 crazy rock star, Steve, and I know about Dr. Steve. Admittedly, I don't know much about either, mm. but so let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Now, where are you from? I was going to say, is the, the house my father built kind of discussion? It is. It is, but we make it fun. Right. I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. And um, raised there till I was six. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we moved to Long Island, mm-hmm. which was the traditional movement back then in the 70s. Because 60s. like when the family starts doing better, is that why? Yeah, sort of. Uh, we moved to a condominium, which was kind of like a, uh, an apartment building turned on its side. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, we were doing a little better. My dad, my dad had his own business. He was in computer consulting. Seems like a good business. It was a good business. To be yeah. in. He did all right. Yeah. He, he was there from when computers were like a block long. Yeah. And, uh, I remember that. He didn't things. really make the transition. Like he still kind of was more in the block long kind of mode. So he missed out on all the really good stuff that happened. He know, got out? Long. No, he just sort of stayed in the same kind of mainframe kind of business. He didn't move into sort of PCs and the rest of it. So he didn't, uh, he didn't make a killing. He's still so, working. Some, something we have in common. Tell me. My dad uh, had a computer store. He was the first guy to sell Apple computers oh in San Francisco. Uh-huh. 
and he got out before that was a big deal. Right. It's like, ah, this is no, this is no business. Yeah, it's I not get the out future. It's obvious yeah. this is not yeah. the future. Let's try something else. Yeah. Um, okay, and so you have brothers and sisters? I have two younger sisters. Okay. Um, Lisa lives in Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, she works at Johnson & Johnson. Okay. Doing a little uh, work there. And then uh, my sister, Abby, mm-hmm. is a librarian. Interesting. So did you in have... In San Francisco. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Now, did you have older child anything, like issues? I mean, I don't think older children should have any issues because I'm a younger child. Okay. So you want me to talk about my issues, do you? I think that that's always good. I figured I'd come in here. That's right. I mean, it starts with the issues. That's how we right. get interesting. Do you have so tissues. For my issues. <laughs> so, issues. so um, yeah, I do have older child. Actually, one of my older child issues is that, um, and I've talked about this a lot. Um, yeah. Is I had a cousin uh, older than me who was an older brother figure to me, mm-hmm. and he was killed in oh, a so uh, New Year's Eve car wreck. Um, killed by a drunk driver long before they, you know, drunk drivers ever paid any penalties for that kind of thing. Or was got he any help. drunk or that had nothing he to do with not. that? He was not. He was just, he oh, was like, man. he was the kid working his way through Brooklyn College working at the bakery. Right. And just had the bad idea to go out for one more thing at four yeah. in the morning. So anyway, that was, you know, that, I was like 13 at the time. So that was like a huge, like I, that was sort of my cushion against having older kid issues. Mm-hmm. And then it was sort of, I had whatever older kid issues expectations I, I guess well oldest male child in a yeah. Jewish family expected to basically take over the universe as a doctor and a lawyer at the yeah. same time yeah and look um, at you actually fulfilling that fulfilling role. well not much on the legal side but you right know, yeah. right so um, so yeah so uh, there were a lot of expectations and actually in the beginning I kind of fulfill them in as much as I was like straight A student and mm-hmm. all that kind of deal mm-hmm. and actually skipped a grade oh, wow. skipped a grade when I was I skipped fourth grade mm-hmm. so all the rage in the 70s mm-hmm. if you got straight A's for more than five minutes they skipped your grade yeah and that never happened to me yeah well you, you know, know whatever. it's not for everyone no it's not and it's as a matter of fact it ruined my life just if it, fourth grade if was you have a any good year Remember, Judy Bloom had a book Tales from a fourth grade nothing that's right it's like a pivotal year yeah well it didn't really ruin I life. had nothing of fourth grade so <laughs> I didn't get to experience any of that and then in fifth grade I had um, I, well actually they, they put me in the fourth grade for like the last three weeks of the year to see how I would acclimate mm-hmm. and basically it was like a Thugs R Us collection it was all these kids who were going to go on to like Thuggery. Right. And so they, and, and I was the only Jewish kid. And once they discovered that, it was it was on. Did they tease you mercilessly? Uh, oh, they teased me and beat me up mercilessly. It was awesome. Why did they tease you? Uh, well, the f- first reason was I was the shortest kid in the class. I was already the shortest kid in my class before I skipped a grade. So now uh, I was like the yeah. smallest kid in the, in the world. Yeah, literally. And obviously I had skipped into their grade and they were thuggish. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, you're smart. Nerd. We hate you. Yeah. Nerd. And then they found out I was Jewish, and I really don't think they even knew what the hell that meant. They yeah. just knew that it was the third reason they should just chase me. So they chased you home from school. They did. And threw my winter hat in a tree, all that kind of stuff. And so, what so would you do? I became very fast. I mean, I okay. So you outran them. I outran them most of the time, and my parents. I, I basically told my parents, like, "Can you please unskip me a grade? Yeah, this is not really working out." Yeah, and they're like, "No, you're a genius. And yeah. You have to move on." So. Um, so yeah, I was just tortured for the next couple of years. Oh, and it went on and it went on. It went on bad enough so that they transferred me to a, to a different middle school. Like, and and was that better? Much better. Yeah, no thugs. No thugs. Just a bunch of uh, nerdy Jewish kids like myself. There's a TLC song about that. A who? A TLC? I don't yeah, want yeah. no thugs. <laughs> 
No, it's Scrubs. <laughs> it's, I'm horrible. Yeah, exactly. You're the musician here. Well, you know, but you're you're the wordsmith, so you know. Allegedly. Yeah, well, yeah, the, Thugs and Scrubs, you get them mixed up. I mean, I think they're the very time. similar. They, actually, they can be. They I can don't be know one how one in the same. I don't know how to describe a scrub. Well, in a sentence. it's sort of like a thug. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but in a TLC song. That's right. Um, so you transferred, and then you went on to high school? Yes, and when did high you, school. Then when did you start experimenting with the drugs and the Oh, alcohol? gosh, we have to go backwards, do we? Do um, you? So when I was uh, 12, uh-huh. um, the summer before my bar mitzvah, mm-hmm. um, I was in summer camp, mm-hmm. and um, the head counselor... Mm-hmm was dealing pot nice. to the other counselors. Okay. And so um, one night uh, or one morning, I don't know what it was, I woke up to the smell of something I didn't recognize. Mm-hmm. And they were in a little circle mm-hmm. and they were sharing some uh, weed and some Genesee cream ale, because it was upstate New York, okay. and some Southern Comfort. It yeah, okay. it's, you know, it's the ale of upstate New York. Um, so they hadn't invited me. And my guess was they were actually trying to like not... You know. Have the campers be a part of it? Oh no no no! These these were all the other campers in the bunk were doing it. I thought they I think they saw me as like the innocent one. They didn't right. want to corrupt me. Hold on, with the counselors? Yeah yeah God yeah. God bless the seventies. God right? bless the seventies. Eighteen year old counselor turning on the twelve year olds. Wow. Thanks for letting me share. So, uh, I smelled it and yeah. I was, and, and then I saw it. My whole deal was it was sort of like that passive peer pressure thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, you know they're they're doing something without me. These are my buddies. Yeah. These are my new friends. Yeah. I haven't had friends like these. In, forever right because this is like the summer after i'd been finished being beaten up every day right, so right. so these were my my homies yeah and so i went and joined the circle and i smoked a lot of weed and mm-hmm. i drank a lot of southern comfort and i drank a lot of genesee cream ale and i kind of grayed out and then i blacked out and I passed out and i woke up with some puke on the corners of my mouth and and said when can i do that exactly again? you just took the words right out of my mouth right everyone else was kind of like oh my head hurts i was yeah. like no come on it's, oh, randy where's the rest of that shit yeah. Yeah, so, yeah yeah and so then that was it from that moment on so from that moment on during those summers i asked to go back to that summer camp three consecutive summers of course yeah i was like yeah we played softball it was great yeah um and during the year, my dad was a little bit of an imposing figure, and so, um, you know, much larger than I, and I didn't want to make him mad. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't use, you know, in, so it's kind of like a dry drunk, mm-hmm. the uh, remaining, I guess that would be eighth, Nine ninth, like or that. Or, yeah, and then I'd go back for the summer. Mm-hmm. And then finally I met somebody in my class, I guess it was maybe sophomore, junior high school, mm-hmm. who he uh, drank regularly in his basement. That's mm-hmm. what you do on Long Island, okay. drinking basements. Yeah. And he also thought it would be more fun if we played punk rock while we were drinking. It would yeah. be something to do. He was writing songs. So this played is, it yourself or listened to it? Uh, both. Okay. Because both of us had, I became attracted to that music around, but both of us at the same time, like 1977 mm-hmm. or so. I mean, I mean, maybe even 76. Um, uh, I was 14 at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that makes sense. 14. And um, so we were listening to the Sex Pistols, or you know, by '77 we were, and just everything else, the Ramones, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And so anyway, he started writing songs. He called himself the Gas Chamber Pimple Boys, mm-hmm. and he uh, brought me on as a drummer. I've been playing the drums since I was eight years old, mm-hmm. and we'd work on these songs: Brain Damage, Genocide, Cupcakes, other songs like this. Okay, yeah. and then and then you became a real band. Well, or that was later. we considered ourselves a real right, band. Right. Well, the way we became a real band was we played our high school battle of the bands. Okay. And um, it was Long Island. 
Was in it the just late the 70s. two of you, or had you added? No, and then more we brought people? we brought on Mark and, and Bob, both of who were sort of like, "This is fun, but we're not going to do this for the rest of our lives." Yeah. Me and Steve were kind of thinking we might do this for the rest of our lives, kind of deal. We were like, "This is amazing. This is what we want to do," but we were also very scared at the prospect of playing out in front of people. So we never played in front of people until. Battle. This battle of the Bands. Right. So there were six bands in the Battle of the Bands. It was Long Island at the end of the 70s. So I think three bands all played Freebird, mm-hmm. and the audience reacted exactly the same way each time. I know one band played Stairway to Heaven. Mm-hmm. So there were four bands that played, and then the fifth band was this weird ringer band that people didn't seem to like because they were playing like horrifying things like Beatles covers and mm-hmm. Dylan and stuff like that and they were like what we don't understand this where's Freebird and then we were the last band and it was in the school cafeteria and we had surrounded ourselves with these garbage cans from the school cafeteria to kind of make a little moat between Mm -hmm. us and the audience so we fired up our first song and uh, it was called Brain Damage Mm -hmm. and um, immediately people started to knock over the garbage cans and pick up the garbage and start throwing the garbage at us Wow! and it started getting really crazy at a certain point. It was like a low ceiling, I think, and people were unscrewing light bulbs and throwing those at us. At one point, there was a little Jack Daniels bottle hit my bass drum. Um, and we lasted for two songs. And then they said, that's it. The Battle of the Bands is over. You know, they unplugged us. And they said, if you don't vote now, we won't have a vote for the best band. And so they voted, and we came in third. We beat third. out at least one of the Freebird bands. I thought you, okay. No, there's no way. There's okay. no way. It's Long Island in the 70s. Yeah, okay. One of the Freebird bands had to win. Okay. The other Freebird band had to be second. Yeah, yeah. Then we could be third. Yeah. So, um, and that was that thing. And, and me and Steve, we were, you know, sort of at that point sort of punk rock historians. Mm-hmm. And as far as we knew, you know, I haven't double-checked this. I've been saying this for, you know, 25, 30 years at this Why point. Keep Just it. keep saying it. Yeah. Um, uh, supposedly the Sex Pistols got thrown and their first gig got thrown off the stage in a hail of garbage after two songs. Oh. So both of us were like, this is it. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So that's how that started. And then we, it was funny because we, ha ha ha, we came outside, we had put, the name of our band that day was The Flies, we mm-hmm. called ourselves The Flies, and we had put The Flies in masking tape on our van mm-hmm. that we came in mm-hmm. and someone had rearranged it to say The Fags. <laughs> so, you know, exactly. We came in third, we didn't win, right. and people still wanted to beat us up and right. thought we were nerdy. Right. <laughs> we couldn't great. we couldn't win. Right. But we felt good about ourselves and then that went on to like at that point, when I was fourteen, fifteen, I was going into New York City to the Palladium was mm-hmm. where like the bigger hall where people like, so I, you know, I saw the clash and the jam and Ramones a hundred times. We used to go to CBs mm-hmm. all the time. And then what happened was that other band, that fifth band they had a couple of ringers from out of town who um, were writing original songs and working on stuff. And they asked me to join their band because you know, I was a drummer, so mm-hmm. I was everybody's drummer. Yeah. And so I joined their band, and by June of that year, uh, we got a spot on the Uncle Floyd show. I don't know if you're familiar with Uncle Floyd. Mm-hmm. East Coast phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, on Channel 8 Million mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Uh, amazing, amazing show, uh, comedy. Um, and... Uh, he was having the Ramones and the Clash, like all these bands were on. Right. And so he had this thing called Pictures on the Wall, and our guitarist brother would be a regular on Pictures on the Wall. And so he wrote to Floyd and said, my brother has a band, and we, we sent a, a, a tape, mm-hmm. and he had us on the show. That's and I, I don't know if you know the, the DJ Vin Skelsa. Vin Skelsa happened to be there. I don't know anything taping. Like this, okay. But, okay. but anyway, it was, it was this, I, I don't know, Ramones figuring it. I know I say Ramones a lot, but you know, yeah, New, New York in the 70s. Yeah. 
So um, yeah, we played on. We were on the Uncle Floyd show, and that was you know pretty much the equivalent of being the Beatles on Ed Sullivan on a local seventies right. punk rock level. Right, right. So not that long after, you know, we were all like sixteen years old. We called ourselves the Responsible Teenagers, mm-hmm. and we got our first shows at CBS, and we played regular at CBGBs and at Max's Kansas City, and. And then I went off to college. Mm-hmm. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. My first choice. I was waitlisted. Boom! Sorry, I took your spot. You did. Luckily, Many years before you got yeah, there. Yeah, I know. Basically. I love. I love being younger than somebody. Oh, and I, I hate it just because I never am. Um, and well, so, for today, that's my <laughs> gift to you today. But yeah, I didn't. I, but that's a great school. Yes. Yeah, Many told me I would have hated it. You might have. I don't know. I don't remember it. Okay. I, I basically, speaking of the, the substance abuse part, yes, yes. I basically ran through that play. They don't have an associate's degree, but I was only there for two years. That's, okay. That's what happened. Okay. And then and then where did you go? Well, the, in, in in Philadelphia, we started to become the house band at this place, the Hawk Club, which was did, like the CBGB. Did CBG Steve music. go with you to UPenn? Or, oh, oh, no. no sorry. This was He's the gone. other band. He's but gone. the other band came to Pennsylvania? They used to. They would commute. They were still in high school. Okay. And they used to commute. We would play gigs at the Hawk Club, and then the manager of the Hawk Club would get us better gigs at CBGBs. He would present us as a Philadelphia band, nice. and we'd get a bet. We yeah. get like a Saturday night at CBS or at Max's. So it was actually worked out going yeah. to Penn for yeah. that. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> if nothing else. But then, so where I went next after that was I. I drank my way out of Penn. I exited through the hospital where they said, um, "Please leave." Mm-hmm. Was it just alcohol? It was, I was a garbage head. Mm-hmm. And so if it was going to change my mood, I took it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, alcohol was my favorite. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the underpinning of everything. Mm-hmm. But back, uh, Quaaludes were still. Yeah, I heard uh, those were great. Yes, it was. Uh, Missed them. I, I thought of it as alcohol without all the fuss and muss. You know, yes, like, boop, yes. Whoop, and GHB I was, was kind of like that. Missed that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I miss, I miss Oxy. Yeah. I certainly miss Molly. Right. I mean, well, whatever. I was surrounded by, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm sober 25 years now. So yeah. I was like there at the advent of crack. Yeah. So, you know, I did, I did freebase. Right. And then crack was happening all around me, I believe, when I was getting sober. And um, I didn't partake. I was, I was I, two years before I stopped drinking, I stopped using drugs. I was like, look at me. I don't use drugs. Yeah. So I just Practically sober. Twice. And practically sober. Um, Sitting at the bar. Practically so, sober. So then did you, so did you go to another college? Yeah, I went to a total of four when okay. all was said and done. Okay. Um, I moved with my girlfriend to Jersey City. Okay. And I was walking around the neighborhood just sort of seeing what's in my neighborhood. Yeah. And there it was, Jersey City State College. Yeah. And I went in, I said, hi, I just uh, left the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. And they were like, okay, come on in. And they gave me a free ride. And it was, it turned out that we, we it's nicknamed, it was on John F. Kennedy Boulevard. It was nicknamed Harvard on the Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And they happened to have this, it was mostly a business college. And it was also kind of cool, very cool, because it had a huge international component. It had like 50% of the students were international students. So that was cool. And then um, they had a huge endowment for a communications building and department. So they had this one amazing film teacher, one amazing TV teacher. And like, you know, the opposite of NYU was like six cameras to every student. So wow. I just went there and, and just learned, you know, just learned and made films and acted. And so you were into stuff. learning despite your alcohol uh, I never, never lost the love of learning. Like my, my, my GPA at Penn was like, I don't know, 
three five or something like that. Like I, you know, I went to class. But why did they make you leave then? Oh, because they, uh, my friends found me in between two parked cars, covered my own vomit, got scared, and brought me to the hospital. Oh, and, and they then they're found like, out. and they were like, the people at the hospital were basically, you know, this is the dark ages with right. alcoholism. Yeah, it was like nineteen eighty, I guess, or eighty yeah. one, and there's no such thing as like teen rehab or anything like that. So the doctor there, the diagnosis I got was, you're a full of shit little eighteen year old. I'm going to send you home to your father, and he'll figure you out. Right. And I begged for mercy, and it was like an like I was an insurance risk. They're mm-hmm. not going to keep me around. Right. They made me sign off on a medical leave of absence. They said, if you can get your shit together in a year, mm-hmm. you can come back. But then I went home, and then I I got into the music scene mm-hmm. and forgot about coming back. So, okay, so you, were, so you were learning all of these things, but then you left Jersey State College. Right. So that was like two and a half years of Jersey City State College, and at the same time playing in a, in a few bands. And then particularly one uh, was uh, Pianosaurus. We played rock and roll and toy instruments. Mm-hmm. And so I say particularly just because that was the one that kind of took me out of Jersey City State College. Like we started to make records and, mm-hmm. and tour around and stuff like that. And, and there were a couple other things that were going on. I was in King Missile at that time. I can't even do the chron- I can't properly do the chronology. Right. It's like really, it might be really misty. I, I could maybe look myself up. I can Google myself and find out when the fuck everything happened. Right. But um, I, I, I was in King Missile at that time. I was playing with a lot of poets. You know, mm-hmm. King Missile is John S. Hall, and he was primarily a poet. And then um, I wasn't yet playing with Maggie Estep. That was later. Um, I was playing with Roger Manning, who mm-hmm. was, uh, there was a movement in New York at that time through a club, a lot through a performance space called ABC No Rio. Um, that was the, called the anti-folk movement. Mm-hmm. And I, a lot, uh, Michelle Shocked. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she says she comes out of there, but she was around that or part of that. Roger was part of that. Um, Cindy Lee Berryhill. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people, who mm-hmm. some of whom are still around. And um, I know Beck used to play at ABC in Rio, and uh, the Buscemi brothers used to do like a, an act. Really? Yeah, yeah. No, it was, and it was right around the corner from where I was living. So mm-hmm. it was very uh, fun times. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Pianosaurus kind of, uh, I guess King Missile was doing a lot, but Pianosaurus was doing more than most. Like mm-hmm. what happened was we, our record came out first in France mm-hmm. on New Rose Records, the small French label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we toured France first. We toured France before we toured here. Oh. And um, we came back, we got our American record deal and started touring around the states a lot of times opening for Alex Chilton mm-hmm. we opened for Jonathan Richmond at Central Park Summer Stage like all these amazing things were happening um, we did shows for the Kennedy Center because they kind of saw us as like this children's thing so okay. they hooked us into the Kennedy Center children's program hey. and before I know it we're like playing concerts for a bunch of kindergartners in Birmingham Alabama right. through the Kennedy Center right. you know? um, so yeah all this kind of stuff took me out of Jersey City State, and then I landed at NYU's screenwriting program. Okay. Because that was an interest too. Mm-hmm. And I lasted there a year, and then I ran out of money. So I, that was that. And so then you went, you stayed in New York. Yeah, then what's happening? So that's like, that's like 1987. Okay. 1987, I was living in Hoboken. Mm-hmm. Hoboken, I'm dying. Um, I was living in Hoboken. I was going to NYU. In, sometimes I would leave town to tour with Pianosaurus. Play with King Missile, just doing a lot of 
all these kind of things and feeling artistically fulfilled. Yeah. And drunk and wasted. Happy. Those were good years. Yeah, those were good years. The alcohol was working for you, as they say. I guess, yeah, I guess that was part of it. Although yeah. I could always go with the Charlie Parker kind of thing of I was doing all those things despite the alcohol. Right, know? right. So, you know, it worked to, I, I, it made me a jolly good fellow. I was, you know, sort of spending more time as like the lampshade drunk yeah. than the morose one. Yeah. And I think becoming the morose one is where it all started to slide down. Yeah, yeah. Well, fun, then, you know, what do they say? Fun, fun with problems, then just problems? Yeah. You were at fun, verging on fun with problems, maybe? Exactly. That was at the crossroads. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so then um, what... Uh, when did you get sober and what caused that to happen? So, um, Piano Source broke up mm -hmm. right when we were going to put out our second album. Mm -hmm. So that was the real, that was the event that sort of spurred it on. And it was very sudden and it was very no closure. There was mm -hmm. no closure at all. And that was July of 88. Mm -hmm. And so I had already been trying to control it. Um, with the help of my erstwhile girlfriend at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. um, we were on a two-person. We didn't know what the program was or anything like that. We were just trying to get me sober. So I would just put, I would produce these bursts of not drinking. Mm -hmm. I'll just call it that. Mm -hmm. And then wheels came off when Pianosaurus broke up, mm -hmm. and I was just like kind of curled up in a corner, sucking my thumb, yeah. you know, getting up for a drink now and then. Yeah. And by uh, around February or so, uh, all that time. Uh, my girlfriend's best friend, uh, who just passed away, just mm -hmm. went to her memorial this weekend. It's a very emotional time. Um, she had been 12-stepping me, mm -hmm. very in the very attraction, not promotion, mm -hmm. very like, you want to go to one of those meetings, you know? And, and I'd be like, no. And she'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Right, right. And finally I went. Mm -hmm. And I went with her to a meeting in February of 89. Mm -hmm. In New York. Uh, in New York. Um, it's called Second Avenue Clean and Dry. Okay. Where they encourage the discussion of drugs as well as alcohol. That's always refreshing. It's a whole nice. group of meetings that yeah. were invented for some people in NA who were having a hard time staying yeah. sober in NA, and they invented those meetings, and they're still around today. And so I just um, ignore that rule in AA. Most most of us do. Because by the time I came around, that's what was happening. Right. You got lucky that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're a beneficiary of that of the hard work that we put in on those thank meetings. Thank you, that we thank invented. you. You're very You've given welcome. me another gift today. But yeah. I always love how people in meetings will say they'll share the most disgusting. They'll be like, "I was shooting drugs up my ass," yeah. and and then I was puking them, and then mm -hmm. they'll be like, "Oh, I'm so sorry for speaking about drugs." Like, that's right. That's what they're sorry about. Oopsie. You know? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Leave so, out the paraphernalia next time. Yeah. So, okay. And so you were going to these meetings. Yeah. I went to, I, I thought, so I went in there and it was basically uh, 50 or 60 people in leather jackets mm -hmm. who all had a band and were heroin addicts. Mm -hmm. I was the only non-heroin addict mm -hmm. in there. Well, so I, that's how I felt. Mm -hmm. And I thought those were the only 60 people who were sober in the mm -hmm. entire world because mm -hmm. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I went back there once a week for the rest of the month, had a few drinks in between meetings and then on March 9th of 89 I raised my hand I said one day and it's been and continuous had you, by the time you had one day were you like did you understand there were more than 60 people who were seven yeah I kind of got a clue right. I didn't know that there were millions right but right. I definitely knew there were more than 60 and did you so you stayed sober from that first identification yeah pretty much I mean that's that's 
Because people always ask me, did you ever relapse? And okay. I was like, yeah, like 8 million times when I was trying to get sober before I got to the rooms. Right. But yeah, uh, yeah it's been that continuous count. since then. That doesn't doesn't, that's what I mean. I, yeah, I think it counts. Okay. You'll I have to have it count. People. I'm a therapist. Okay. Yeah. I mean, God, I've relapsed thousands of times. Gajillions of times. Yeah. So, okay. And so then you, I assume, to uh, start going to more than one meeting a week. Oh, so that's where, you know, sometimes newcomers get scared by me because I tell them how I went to a meeting a day yeah. at least for the first nine years. Yeah. Because I love meetings. I think meetings are a gas. Yeah. I mean, there are people who, well, I think those people tend to burn out who go to three. Right. And four. And, and I, I would say I went to three. But what was happening? I was, I was gainfully unemployed at the time. Yeah. And I was living in New York. Mm-hmm. In New York, you can just walk around. So I just walked from meeting to meeting. It's like there, there were times in the first year where I was... At a 7.30 a.m. because mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep. And then I would, you know, we'd have some breakfast, whatever. Then I'd be at a noon meeting. Then mm-hmm. I'd probably be at some mid-afternoon meeting. Then maybe I'd be at some meeting, you know, wow. like drive time. And then I'd go to, you know, the evening meeting. And right. then if shit wasn't taken care of by then. They have lots of late night ones there. Midnight group. Yeah. Not, I, some of my best friends in the world to this day are people I met at the midnight group. Oh, at that place above the club. It's on house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there, there's a... On, I don't know if it's still this week. I, I meant to look at the meeting book when I was in town this weekend, but it used to be that on weekdays there was a 10 p.m., a midnight, and, and a 2 a.m. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure it's still going. Then, then on the weekends, they add a 4 a.m., <laughs> which makes it so that there is only one hour between 5 and 6 a.m. Oh, on the weekend. Well, there's 6 a.m. meetings, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wow. th- there's only one hour of the 24 that you cannot be sitting in an AA. That's meeting, crazy. Which is totally crazy. But, you know, it befits New York, the city that never, never sleeps. sleeps, supposedly. Yeah. I had a commitment there, but not at the 2 a.m. Yeah. Or 4 a.m. Yeah, or whatever. It's hard to get people to commit to those commitments. Yeah. At the 2 a.m. the 4 a.m. Yeah. And you, the one, one commitment, which is pull the guy who's shooting up in the bathroom out of the bathroom. <laughs> we didn't have that one yeah. at, at the one I was had the commitment in. Um, so, and so then when did you make your way to Los Angeles? So that was um, 12 years. It'll be 12 years in August. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like a Angelina now. So, yeah. 10 so, years, that's when you celebrate, 10 right? years, yeah. Double digits. Yeah. And then you're like in. Local. Yeah, local. So, so um, yeah, I know where the good tacos are now. Yeah. yeah. It takes me 10 years. It changes sometimes. It though. does change. You yeah. Know, you got to keep up with it. Yeah. And be willing to drive. Yeah. So, um, got here 12 years ago. Um, it was, I followed a relationship here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the relationship dissolved mm-hmm. quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was doing the kind of work where I was traveling a lot. So, I didn't have to be in New York. So like any good New Yorker, I did not give up my Brooklyn apartment, mm-hmm. which was not rent controlled, but just rent controlled by design of the landlord who mm-hmm. loved me. Mm-hmm. And so I just held on to that. And I was like, I saw the palm trees waving in the wind. And I thought, you know, let's see what happens. If right. I stay here. Right. And um, very early on, a friend of mine was um, working at Promises mm-hmm. in their outpatient. And she called me up and said, would you like to do a group? And I said, and I, we didn't cover this part of things, but I had been a teacher for many years and been had become like an educational consultant and mm-hmm. done a lot of adult education and corporate training and other kinds of, all kinds of training. And so I said, well, I'm not a therapist. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I don't need a therapist. I need a teacher. I've mm-hmm. got lots of therapists. So I started doing a life skills group at Promises. Well, and I did Promises outpatient. They got me sober. What year? Um, t- uh, 2000. Did you like my group? I didn't 
go to Europe too. <laughs> she didn't Were go you still school. doing no, it? No, I wasn't. I wasn't there yet. Okay. I wasn't even in LA yet. Okay. Okay. I just thought I would say that. Yeah. No, because I, I remember vividly. Yeah. I remember Nan. They did it. Sammy was yeah. my counselor. I don't know if he was there uh-huh. when you were there, but he was amazing. Okay, go on. So, um, so I started doing the groups there, and then that just sort of plugged me into the rest of the sort of community. Mm-hmm. And so I got asked to do groups elsewhere, and I had been sitting uh, Zen meditation since mm-hmm. very early in my recovery, like like when I had about nine months. I was brought to an AA retreat at a Zen monastery, mm-hmm. and I've been meditating ever since. So um, I was asked to do meditation groups, and I did those. I did some of those at Visions, you know, with the teenagers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it just kind of grew from there. And then as that was happening, I also got a job doing substance abuse prevention intervention with young people in independent schools all around the world. It's okay. this organization called Freedom from Chemical Dependency. Mm-hmm. They just got bought by Hazelden, mm-hmm. and they have been around for many years, and they're just embedded in the independent schools where they do uh, their standard thing. It's like a four-day workshop, mm-hmm. uh, helping kids to uh, engage in healthy habits and prevention, mm-hmm. and also, you know, if they're already into what we were into at the age that we yeah. were into it, to help to see if there's any way that they can either intervene on themselves or for their peers to interview on them so anyway and so I was traveling all over the place with them mm-hmm. I got to go um, I was in China I was in Beijing I was in wow, Taipei okay. all over the country one year mm-hmm. I must have drawn the right straw because mm-hmm. I got all three schools that we were in Paris so I stayed in Paris for three weeks and taught prevention so I was having a lot of fun with that mm-hmm. and the more I did all that work the more I was like kind of feel, I'm feeling like I'm a therapist you know mm-hmm. it's getting much more like that the, the conversations are getting deeper the problems that people have are more complicated and I'd like to get in a little deeper on those complications right so, that's so why not I'll, become one so let's become one and so I went back to school and got my master's and then I got my PsyD mm-hmm. and um and I've been, you know, now I have private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, as we speak right now, there the second group because we we just have one group room right now, but the second group at my new outpatient center just is started in session. Yeah, I can't believe you didn't Today's leave the first, the first group. You know, I mean, that's one way of doing it. Yeah, but, you know, let's take the egos out of it yeah. and let the yeah. let the folks start yeah, I mean, doing be what the they kingdom, do. You know, be the king who's going to, sorry, it's That's not right. about that. Who's gonna I should have done all three groups today and call it the Steve Danziger Center. Yeah, I think you should have. <laughs> Does anybody name a center after themselves sometimes? No. Oh, sometimes. I mean, which is I not, not to I'm say. I'm an addiction center. Yeah, which is not to say that just because they're not naming the centers after themselves, they are not egomaniacs. We'll just you know? leave that for. So, but what I do want to talk to you are like you had you ran into some trouble in sobriety, right? Oh yeah. So do you want to talk about that? Sure. Okay. I'll talk about anything with you. Now. Okay. So so you were sober a while. Yes. And then what happened? Um, I blew a gasket of some kind. <laughs> That's a technical term. <laughs> yeah, the, the car kind of the carburetor trouble. So um, I. The best explanation I can give for it at this point is that, you know, uh, everyone who, I am finding that most people who, who are in recovery have their core issues that are harder to get at, um, that the steps sometimes will deal with a lot of it and the fellowship and just everything that the program has to offer, everything that 
standard therapy has to offer, whatever. Mm -hmm. But just about everyone I've talked to has this thing happen at some point. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's in their first year. I think that's fortunate. Right. Some people, it's in their ninth year. Some people, in their 23rd year. So some people, it's, I'm just going to speak from personal experience. Sure. Seventh year as well as 12th year. Exactly. There can be yeah. two layers to it or yeah. two total different themes. Yeah. So my theme was is that I had a really hard time with the ending of relationships. Mm -hmm. And so a relationship ended and I just, it, whatever. Fell the F apart. What's that? Fell the F apart. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the wheels completely came off. I okay. think I might have used that image already today, so I apologize for you, repeating my We better edit it out because you're metaphors. not allowed to repeat well, any metaphors. Know, you're the wordsmith, so you just you do the edit. I'll let you do that. <laughs> if only I knew how to sound edit, I would. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so the wheels came off, and, and then they just came offer and offer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I had suffered depression. I, you know, I, I don't, let's call it a clinical depression. Mm -hmm. um, because that's what they were calling it, the proverbial they. Mm -hmm. And it just got worse and worse. And so then um, I couldn't function, and I basically checked myself in mm -hmm. to the psych ward. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, Lenox Hill, mm -hmm. lovely this time of year. They're mm -hmm. closed now. Oh, they are? Upper East Side, yeah. Okay. And what happened? Oh, but you were in L.A. No, you hadn't made it here yet. Oh, yeah, this is before. Okay, okay. Yeah, this is before L.A. Okay. And so I went into there, and... Uh, the psychiatrist who was referring me there, he's like, you know, it's going to be professionals like you and, you know, like that. And it was, it was sort of, uh, you know, there was a cop, there was a this, mm -hmm. there was that. Anyway, at that time, Lenox Hill was part of this vanguard that was uh, sort of advertising and linking into um, electroshock therapy as a first line therapy. Interesting. As opposed to like saving it for last resort, or something. Yeah. And so they were like basically trying to 12 step me into some electrodes. Wow. And I was, and I was very vulnerable at the time. Yeah. I was like, not, I was kind of like, eh, you know, maybe let's think about it. Yeah. And that was, you know, my family and I, you know, we have our, we've had our history and our, our ups and downs. They showed up for me. Like they, they gave them like some kind of video, like, you know, electroshock and you, you know, and they watched it and they're like, you Absolutely know, not. They're just I have not a friend happening. who did it. I have friends who've done it too. Yeah, he's a memory shot. Yeah, there, there are side effects. Yeah. And um, I remember one time, actually, there was a, a guy came by on, on the gurney afterwards, the surgeon who was in there, <laughs> speaking of professionals, and he, he was being wheeled by and he had the whole thing. He was like kind of like sitting up yeah. and his eyes were kind of crossed and his hair oh, was yeah, out yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to leave now. So yeah. I left against medical advice yeah. since their medical advice was that I so take electroshock. Yeah. But that didn't work out because um, I got worse again and um, I ended up at a terrible, terrible, well, I won't call it terrible because they've helped friends of mine. Um, a hospital um, called Woodhull mm -hmm. in Bushwick. It's just very, I, well, my memory of it was that it was just a very dark and scary place. Yeah. So I did that for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Can't remember if I left against medical advice or not. Mm -hmm. Then I ended up at uh, St. Vincent's, mm -hmm. which also is closed now. You know, recently. <clears throat> yes. And um, there, they had no more room in the 2030 something. Ward, so they put me in the geriatric psych ward, which was an experience all into itself. Yeah. So I was there for three weeks, and that still didn't work. But what was happened? What happened there was, I was talking on the phone, I think, with one of my Buddhist friends, and one of them suggested either I suggested the monastery or they suggested the monastery, and so I ended up, uh, you know, faxing all these documents to the monastery to see if they would have me mm -hmm. in September. This was like August. 
And they were like, yeah, sure, you know, we're a monastery. Yeah. So I went to the monastery where I'd been practicing all this time, and uh, it worked. And the reason why, so the psychiatrist there at St. Vincent's, my family and my friends asked him, you know, like, do you think this is a good idea? And he said that, well, this is the only thing that he has said that he thinks might get him better. <clears throat> so let's definitely do it. You know, like, I don't understand it, said the psychiatrist. Right. But um, good for him. let him do it. Exactly. No, I'm very grateful to him for yeah. having that thought. And um, so, yeah, it still was a couple more weeks where I went to some outpatient kind of deal at Columbia Presbyterian. And when you say it wasn't working, were you suicidal? Is that what yes. the issue was? Yes. And so you actively wanted to kill yourself and they were keeping you there to it, prevent it you from It was all about out. safety, yeah. It was just all about like this guy's on, you know. And it wasn't like, I want to kill myself. It was just kind of like, I want to die. Yeah. You know? And, you know, when you say that in that environment, yeah. no matter how softly you say it, they're like, <laughs> they, 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 they make an arrangements for a longer stay. Yeah. yeah. And I'm grateful to them, too. You know, I mean, like, I, all I remember doing there was, like, not being allowed to shave for certain yeah. periods of time and, and playing bingo. We played bingo. This is a great game. It's a great game. I wish bingo. I played bingo now more. Well, you, you, you know what the best part of it is? Kind of nice, yeah. Bingo! Right? Like it's oh such my God. A, they shouldn't let an addict play bingo, probably. You know, yeah, it's a little yeah, triggering. But, training, uh, yeah. So, but so you, and they were trying medication, I assume. Yes. And it, you were just not, not responsive. And that's, so that's another thing. That's a, a, a subject, uh, you know, I'm like working on three different book projects right yeah. now. One of them is just, uh, touches on the subject of medication and um you know like i've seen it work miracles for certain people and then when when certain people take it they just become one big side effect and it's just not appropriate that's why when i say was it a clinical depression well the fact that i was not responsive to any antidepressant medication at all except to like become worse yeah that is i have heard that that that, that's the only test they have is if the meds work exactly then you are. That's it. Yeah. Here, take this. Yeah. Let me watch you. Yeah. Oh wait, you're still in the hospital because you're getting worse. Okay. Yeah. Got yeah. It. So anyway, it was it was very uh, it, it sucked. Yeah. But um, and then when I went to the monastery, I really the only thought that I had was this will be a much more pleasant place to just sort of drop. Be depressed. Dead. Yeah. yeah. Be depressed and yeah. eventually just stop breathing. Yeah. And within 21 days. As in exactly 21 days, the fever broke. Like I just participated in what was going on up there, um, sitting in retreats and following the direction of you know the, the monks and the Zen master there. And 21 days later, I had an experience where I I just uh, came out of, came out of the bad dream. Did you just wake up one day? It was. I'll, I'll I'll share it with you. I, I was sitting. It was in the morning meditation, like you know, four a.m. because mm-hmm. that's what you do at a monastery. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there having my usual experience of mm-hmm. being in hell. Mm-hmm. You know, just like oh God, something please change. Yeah. And then I had the thought of. Um, I suddenly thought, you know, you know, because I've been a high school teacher. When I get home, I'm going to teach this to, to kids. Right. And it was the first positive future-based thought I'd had in about six months and and then a whole group of associations came from that sort of like well that means that I'm home that means that I I must have a job (laughs) that means I I have my friends again that means I'm at my meetings I'm doing my life oh my god I'm gonna live like I don't it's over 
Right. And so during the walking meditation, I took one of, I got one of my friends and I grabbed him into the bathroom and I pinned him against the wall and I was like, I'm okay. Right. And he was just like very scared and was like, <laughs> you, of course I knew you're like, no one, they knew that I was depressed, but they didn't right. know just how. Yeah. Because they weren't depressed. In your head, yeah. So he was like. And was, was this a silent monastery? Were you, is that part of what the solution was? 21 yeah. days of silence? It was not complete silence. So when, when they're on retreat, it's absolutely no unnecessary talking and keep your eyes to yourself and all that kind of stuff. But that, you know, that's four days at a time or seven days mm. at a time. In the in-between time, you're still, you know, not supposed to be, you know, dishing. But you're allowed. But you're allowed to talk, right. you know. So there was some talking. And it just, it was a very interesting group of people that were up there. Um, it just happened, like this woman who had been teaching yoga for like 25 years was there. And so she took me on as a project. And um, there was this uh, monk who was a PhD psychologist from the University of Vienna, you know, right from the source. Right. And so he was there and he was sweet as hell. And he, he, we would take long walks around the lake and he would, you know, sort of talk me down from that perspective. And so you <clears throat> went, came back to home and then, and then the part we covered where you came to LA. Yes. And then, yeah. And you were cured. Um, ish. Cured ish. I mean, I, I had another, like when that breakup happened of the relationship that brought me to LA, mm -hmm. I had like a mini, uh, not a, a, you know, I was about to call it a mini version of that. And that would imply yeah. anything that remotely looked like that. I mean, I was bad, but it was just you, your average sober person going through a, yeah. a really rough time. Which does, you do want to die. You do, you want to die. But you kind of get that it's going to change. Exactly. Enough so that you don't really want to die. Yeah. Because you want to see what's next. Yeah. And the other thing was, too, was that it became sort of like a bottom for other pro. Like, I had done a little bit of other programs back in New York. Right. And then here I sort of dive-bombed into yeah. a couple of other programs others, to deal yeah. with some special stuff. Yeah. And, and, and really got very well, very fast. That was the air quotes there. Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. well, very fast. Yeah. Um, as a result of sort of diving into that stuff. Do you, uh, are you in therapy now? I am. Yeah. I'm, I have a great therapist. Like Dr. Melfi. I know. <laughs> so, so you go to therapy. Yes. And I go, my therapy that I'm in is uh, somatic experiencing therapy. Oh, okay. I'm, as a practitioner, I am, uh, I do a lot of EMDR. I know. So, um, and then somatic experiencing is the other, you know, top two hits of trauma sensitive therapy. And so I'm doing somatic experiencing because um, it, a couple of reasons. One is it's something that I never, never really was drawn to as a professional, mm -hmm. but I also, you know, I don't want to be on that side of the couch yeah. with it, um, but I could see that it works. And so it's really helpful. And EMDR, for those who don't know, it you know it's a it's a form of hypnosis, sort of. It's it's that's some of its reputation because people are waving their fingers in front of people's mm -hmm. eyes, and there maybe there's a hypnotic aspect to it, but it's actually um, kind of a lot deeper than that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, uh, it's a therapy that kind of moshes together a number of different therapies that are somatic cognitive um and and puts in this aspect of the eye movements which there's a lot you know the, since the 80s when the therapy was invented there's been a lot of research and hopefully they're getting closer and closer like with anything else to do with the brain mm -hmm. to maybe understanding why it's working there's right. a, there's a number of different explanation possible explanation as to why eye movements or bilateral stimulation of some kind will be helpful in uh working through trauma but um 
so what, what's happening in the room is it's less about talk therapy and it's more about um, setting up sort of uh, these protocols that allow a person to safely in the office without being re-traumatized kind of go through and get through their trauma and have it actually sort of make its way from the more primitive parts of the brain to the more cognitive parts of the brain mm -hmm. where that part of the brain can say yeah that that happened it sucked but it's over as opposed to the way people are driven around by trauma, which is like it's stuck in their amygdala somewhere. Right. And they something keep reenacting it. They re over and over and over again. Um, yeah, I, I, EMDR, quote, didn't work on me. I don't know if it was the practitioner. It could be. You know, it's, it's not for everyone. Yeah. In, in my own practice, I've... Um, you know, I've used it with people or tried to use it with people and it's like it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, there's other people who are like categorically refuse. Mm -hmm. and, and either one of those, what I find is, is that because I have, for me, now I have this sort of theoretical orientation that's built around EMDR and being sensitive to how tr what role trauma plays in a person's life, then I'm able to uh, re, uh, re, you know, sort of change gears mm -hmm. and be able to guide that healing process the best I can, you know, just using talk therapy and, and the other things that I have in my tool belt. So, so I, I find it to be a very powerful therapy when it works and it, you know, uh, there are practitioners out there doing all different kinds of therapy who are trained to different levels and mm -hmm. have, are, you know, like any other profession, you know? Right, right. So, you know, you might want to take another stab at it or you might... Yeah, he, yeah. I mean, who knows? I, um, but I, I, what did I want to say? I wanted to say, um, I want you to talk about, I have to do a quick time check. I mm -hmm. want you to talk about, um, the treatment center. Sure. And then... Uh, you know, the involvement of Noah Levine and Mark mm -hmm. Marin and these exciting people. I just need mm -hmm. to make sure that my lunch um, hasn't canceled. We're so good. Mm -hmm. um, so t t let's talk about your, your treatment center. Yeah. Just so um, very, I feel like I have a movie coming out. This is great. I know, right? But um, so the uh, I started visioning uh, an outpatient treatment center uh, back a year ago in mm -hmm. April. And I put together a plan for it. And... Uh, went through all these zigzags and at a certain point what became uh, closer started working with Noah Levine. Mm -hmm. um, Noah, Noah invited me into his teacher training uh, at Against the Stream to become a teacher. And he's the Dharma Punks guy for anybody who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And now the Against the Stream guy yes. at the same time he's the Dharma Punks yes. guy. So, so we, I start, he was talking about a more residential thing like a Buddhist residential center and I was talking about outpatients so we kind of agreed mm -hmm. well let's let's do this outpatient thing together and then he found the person who wanted to fund, fund it. it yeah so um, the three of us got together around Christmas time and we're like hey this is happening right and it took us a while to find our place and our place is down the street from here because yeah this is the great area for recovery right this is where to be you know um, so and what's it called it's called Boulevard Centers yeah BLVD Oh, interesting. Yes. We're just going straight for the abbreviation. Oh, straight for the abbreviation because you can also think of it as kind of a text kind of a thing of beloved. Oh, oh look at that. Look at that. Look what just happened. So it's a broad highway yeah. where you can be loved. Oh, I like it. Yeah, me too. And so, and it is for people who uh, want to get sober, want therapy, all of the above, right? So it's, yes, it's an outpatient center. Um, so, no, and I'm doing it with Noah. So obviously there's a mindfulness 
yes. com- uh, part to it. Or let's put it this way, there's a mindfulness base to the whole thing. Right. Because I've been sitting in meditation for 25 years, Noah's been teaching for years and years. And so there's a mindfulness base and a trauma sensitive base. Mm-hmm. And we're also gonna have, um, for lack of a better word for now, tr- tracks. There's going to be very. Uh, there's going to be a lot of programs, a lot of programming that you don't see at a lot of other rehabs, and um, uh, we're also going to be um, doing. Noah has a new book coming out in June mm-hmm. called Refuge Recovery. Mm-hmm. There are already Refuge Recovery meetings going on in LA and in other cities, oh my God. and it basically outlines a Buddhist a, a, a program of recovery using the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So it's going to be really interesting. Number one is that you know there's already people kind of doing, doing that, yeah. And then it's also going to be interesting to see you know sort of the dialogue that's going to be going on as yeah. you know as another alternative to twelve steps enters the picture, and we're going to be the one outpatient center kind of delivering that in a right. kind of a clinical fashion. So we're gonna, we we have we have six group rooms there, so we're going to be able to run six concurrent groups of many different kinds. One of our group rooms has like 40, 50 seats. So we're going to have, you know, we'll have events there and seminars. And it's just going to be a really exciting place. And it's open for business now. If somebody wanted to go over there today. Yeah, it, yeah. it happened. At first, what, what, what we did was we ended up subleasing a very small part of the building. It's 5,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. But uh, the sublease got faster. So we have the whole first floor. So we mm-hmm. opened today with the whole first floor, which gives us two group rooms, actually th- kind of three group rooms. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be working on the upstairs. Uh, June 1st, we'll take over the upstairs, and that's when we'll have the whole 5,000 square feet. We're going to have um, a roof garden nice. where all staff and clients are going to meditate first 15 and last 15 minutes of the day. It's going to be a lot of meditation going on. Yeah, great. And um, yeah, it's very, very exciting. Is Against the Stream going to meet there or no? Separate? I don't, you know, well, Against the Stream, you know, they have their locations at Melrose and at, um, uh, in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll utilize that, right. that, that room. You know, I know I'm going to be utilizing it for meditation groups. You know, there's going to be plenty of room. And we're also running a day program and a night program. Uh-huh. So starting May 1st, if you're still, if a person's still working, and wants treatment and has to do the outpatient model, we'll have a night program where they can get the same number of and groups. That's what I did. Day. There you I go. I did that. Yeah. And, um, and it was great. It yeah. was great because I didn't have like the ego or whatever. I knew that if I had to quit my job also, then I would not, I would feel like I didn't have anything to live for or something like that. So I needed to keep working, mm. you know. Um, the site I was working for went under like three months later, but then I was sober and on a pink cloud, so I didn't care. There you go. Um, and and Marin is a longtime friend. A listeners will know that uh, Doc Steve was mentioned in the Marin interview that I did. Yeah. And um, he is gonna he is gonna be helping a little bit or a lot with the pod. You're doing podcasts. You're doing publishing. All of that. Yeah. So I started a, a publishing company and a media company called Start Again. Mm-hmm. And I am going to go into the podcasting. And Mark has agreed to you know put as much weight and help behind me mm-hmm. as possible. We've been friends for a long time. And I was in the first two years of his podcast, I was on like eight times. Oh, know? I didn't know you went yeah. over and over again. Oh yeah. So I you know we did the one full length interview. But before that, when his interviews were a little shorter, yeah. you know, um, we, we did like 10 and 15 minute interviews about anger management and about, um, what else did we do? 
eating disorders and uh-huh. all kinds of stuff. And, uh-huh. and there was even one where I did a, a live one, one of the live ones, where okay. I came onto to the stage and tried to help him and Eddie Pepitone with their anger issues <laughs> and failed miserably. But Eddie Pepitone. Comedy came out. Previous uh, after party guest. I know. I saw that. God, I love him. He's awesome. I don't think he's angry. That's my theory about him. Yeah, I think that that was the deal. He actually, in that moment, I looked at his face Mm-mm. and I was like, you're just a vulnerable, sweet guy. Sweetest guy ever. And But him and Mark were yelling at each other yeah. over me and it was very entertaining. <laughs> and then they both said they felt better and I said, okay, my job is done. <laughs> so, and do you do the social media stuff? Like, I don't see you tweeting all day. You know, that's, uh, right now, um, my, uh, the main, my main partner in Start Again has been really at me to yeah. tweet. And I, so I want to become yeah. a Twitter, tweeter. Yeah. You know, I want to do it. Yeah. But I haven't, I just haven't got the groove yet. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, it's beyond pop songs. It's like, it's like brain farts. It's, it's just so Well, and I would little. say it, it, yeah, it, but yet it requires a certain dedication, yes. you know, that, that, um, you know, I, it's, I think it's sort of like program. You can't quite understand it unless you're doing it. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's impossible to sort of explain, I think, until you're involved almost. Like sobriety. You yeah, know, a little until bit. Until you're in it, you don't even know what it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying. Yeah. I, I mean, you know what? That's a lie. I haven't tried. Hard You've thought enough. about trying. I've thought about trying. Yeah. I, I have a total of about eighteen tweets. So yeah, far. yeah. But I've only been at it for a little. But the rest of it, like you know, start again. We're working Facebook and yeah. Instagram, all that stuff. And you have a website, of course, that yes. people can you know contact you through that. Startagainmedia.com. There's also Dr. Stephen Danziger. Danziger. Dr. Right? Dr. Danziger. Oh, okay. okay. That's the when when whenever you want a URL, what yeah. you do is you go back in time and you get your grandfather to come over on a boat to Ellis Island and not speak good enough English for them to get the name right and have the only spelling of your name great because it should have a that Z exists in the world it should have a Z and has an S instead great. he spoke fluent Polish Czech Spanish he was coming from Argentina right but you know lucky not you I'm so lucky yeah you know, that URL was just I was like what yeah, yeah, I got Anna David, and trust me, the German singer who is also named Anna David, yeah. uh, it probably isn't happy. I was just early. I'm she, an egomaniac. I went in early. So now she's AnnaDavid.net, and she hates you. Yeah, or .dk. I don't even know. Dot but, Germany. you know, she showed me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or I showed her. Somebody she showed has, somebody. She has more Twitter followers. I mean, whatever. For it's now, just for today. A competition, anyway, right? So this was a delight. We, we, uh, you are a delight. Thank you so much for Anytime. coming on. Anytime. Okay, great. Fascinating guy, right? You liked him, right? Fascinating life. You can do it all. I guess that's what he proves, among other things. So thanks for listening, and see you next time.